This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. Before Wilmington had a courthouse, it had a jail. It was located at the corner of 3rd and Market Streets, in the heart of the still relatively small downtown, beginning in the late 1740s, where it put the show of crime and punishment on full display for the public to see. In the years before the American Revolution, Wilmington was a city on the rise, but it wasn't quite there yet. It would be incorporated by 1740, but for the next several decades, it would be a city battling for regional supremacy with its southern neighbor down the river at Brunswick Town. But a confluence of political support and financial investment in the small port city would allow it to firmly plant its importance to the region and the colony by the time the rumblings of a revolution swept across the Cape Fear. As its profile surged, so too did the watchful eye of its law enforcement, who strictly enforced the British colony's wide-reaching criminal code, making a jail more necessary than ever. But in a twist of fate, the jail was abandoned for a site a few blocks away, and the property at 3rd and Market Streets hit the market and caught the eye of one of the most prominent men in town. In the years that followed, the historic residents that would emerge on the property would come to define the colonial era in Wilmington. Today, it is a home built from the bones of a jail that has proven it can stand the test of time and the growing pains of a country to survive for 250 years. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're returning to Wilmington's founding century to take a look at how the city's first jail, a site of brute colonial crime and punishment, became one of the region's most beautiful and historic homes. The Bergwin Wright House was built on top of that jail, with its structures and cells absorbed right into the foundation of a home that would become a centerpiece for entertaining and business, hosted by one of the region's most wealthy, and influential men, John Bergwin. But this isn't just the story of a single house. The Bergwin Wright House is one of the last remaining colonial homes still standing and open to the public in the Cape Fear. And its history weaves through the war for independence, the struggle of antebellum America, and ultimately 
the rise of the historic preservation movement that would save it from demolition. I'll share with you this story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Christine Lamberton, the director of the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens Museum. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we journey back to Colonial Wilmington for the story of the house built on top of a jail. When justice needed to be served in Colonial Wilmington in the years before the city's first courthouse was built, a traveling judge would ride into town to deliver his verdicts. He would meet the latest crop of detainees at the city's jail, first commissioned in 1744 at the corner of 3rd and Market Streets. Construction on the jail had begun quickly after it was commissioned, but it wouldn't be complete until 1749. However, that didn't stop the city from making use of the cells and cages that would eventually come to inhabit the two-acre property. Even before it was done, criminals of all manner would be housed at the jail. Murderers, thieves, and rapists were obvious occupants who would meet their fate at the jail. But colonial crimes extended far beyond the typical offenses that we think of today. Gossiping was against the law in those days. So was talking ill against the British crown, which would govern the colonies for a few more decades. And if you were found to be inciting the growing rebellion, you were also likely to find yourself behind these bars. But Christine Lamberton, the current director of the Bergwin Wright House Museum, said the most frequent occupants of the jail would have been the poorest of the community those considered to be debtors. These were often those farmers who lost their crops to bad luck or bad weather, who could no longer pay off their debts. The jail was broken up into sections based on the crime charged against you. There were debtor cells and cages for petty criminals in the space that is now the Bergwin Wright House's art gallery. But for those who committed what were considered more grievous crimes, like stealing horses or valuables, a.k.a. those things that typically belonged to the wealthier set of the community, they were kept separately, often in a sub-basement cell known to the public as a dungeon. This dark, cramped, dirt-floored space was also where the worst offenders, murderers and rapists, were locked away pending judgment. But to the colonial community... Stealing from the rich and influential or inciting unrest in the king's land was almost as serious a crime as killing someone. And while murder is murder no matter the century, most of the crimes that landed people in these crowded jail cells were disproportionately skewed to affect those less fortunate in the region, including those enslaved by local residents. In so many ways, the class system that dictated colonial communities like Wilmington was clearly evident at the jail. 
Now, one thing that I should note about the colonial criminal justice system is that jail didn't lead to prison, as it does for those convicted of crimes today. In the 1700s, criminals weren't incarcerated for long periods of time. You were arrested, charged, tried, and punished if found guilty. Some of those punishments were lenient. Maybe the person had to pay a fine or something they owed. Others were more humiliating, like being made to stand with your arms, head, or feet shackled in stocks and pillories. Or maybe you found yourself held in one of the crowded outdoor cells or cages. Some of the sentences were more painful displays of punishment, including those delivered at the whipping post. And then there was the justice that was served on the gallows, with executions being held publicly for anyone in town to come watch, and they were encouraged to do so. It was no coincidence that the jail was at the heart of the city, because serving out your punishment in the public eye was seen as a means of deterring future criminal activity. The city's relatively small size and the government's habit of arresting people for a wide variety of charges also meant that they didn't have the room to hold people for extended sentences. They needed to move them in and move them out. The jail at 3rd and Market Streets had grown beyond its property and after 25 years had certainly served its purpose. With Wilmington booming as war grew closer, Crime and the need for more space to address it had also grown. In 1769, the jail was decommissioned after a fire claimed its roof, and it was moved to 2nd and Princess Street, which is now the home of Memory Lane Comics. But this wasn't just about making more room to house criminals. The wealthy in Wilmington didn't like having a jail at the center of town. They wanted it to be a residential oasis that sat at the intersection of the bustling economy of the port, the liveliness of downtown, and the quiet expanse of the rural country. This is where John Bergwin enters our story. Bergwin arrived in America as a teenager, with instructions from his father to go find his purpose in the colonies. He was well-educated and well-liked, but he wasn't the firstborn, and therefore not entitled to his family's fortune. So he was sent to make a name for himself, and build up businesses that his family could work with from across the pond. He would arrive in Wilmington in the early 1750s, and rent a home on 2nd Street, between Market and Dock Streets, just a block from the jail. He would quickly secure a place in high society, and gained considerable access to wealth when he courted and married Margaret Haynes. She was the daughter of the owner of Castle Haynes, a major plantation that would later give its name to the Castle Haynes community in northern New Hanover County. Once married, the couple would buy the modest home on 2nd Street, but they would also build out a plantation of their own called the Hermitage, on a thousand acres of property in what is now Castle Hain. Bergwin would do as his family asked of him in the Wilmington business scene by becoming a successful merchant and planter in the next two decades, 
eventually positioning himself to be a major, although behind-the-scenes player in the region's political arena. He was appointed quartermaster of the New Hanover County Militia, and later became clerk of court in Bladen County, where he spent a considerable amount of his time. He held a number of prominent positions, mainly in the field of law across New Hanover and Bladen counties, both of which he claimed residence in. But it was his work as the private secretary of three royal governors, starting with Arthur Dobbs, and as treasurer for the North Carolina colony under Royal Governor William Tryon, that further solidified his role in the region's social and political spheres. After a fire destroyed the wooden roof of the jail at 3rd and Market Streets in 1768, Bergwin, knowing the value of the highly visible property, stepped up to purchase the land. He bought it in 1769 and began building a home on top of the three sturdy jail structures that still stood. Today, you can see the ballastone base that comprised the jail with an outdoor cell still visible outside, and the freestanding jailer's home, converted into a kitchen for the new residents. He and Margaret, who unfortunately died in 1770, still owned their smaller home on 2nd Street in Wilmington. But that house was by no means a show of Bergwin's status in the region. The home he was building at 3rd and Market was intended to change that. The massive residence would become a centerpiece of downtown and go on to host some of the finest and most important gatherings in the city, with influential residents and powerful out-of-town guests clamoring to be wined and dined on the property. Bergwin didn't use the house as his own personal residence, choosing to lay his head in the home he shared with Margaret, just a few hundred feet away. Instead, he used the house as a place to conduct business, schmooze the visiting politicians and leaders, give them a nice bed to sleep in instead of sending them off to a boarding house, and show the community that he was a man of importance. But Bergwin faced a crisis as the revolution heated up in the 1770s. Although some question whether he towed the line between loyalist and rebel right up to the doorstep of the war, like other influential men in Wilmington had, there was no question that Bergwin sided with the British. How could he not, considering he had worked with the Crown's royal leadership in North Carolina? But Lamberton notes that it wasn't as black and white a decision as it may seem to us today. Bergwin had nothing to protect in England, having been shipped off to the colonies by his father to make his own fortune. His wealth, his status, and his name were all tied to what he had built in the colonies, and protecting that from either side was privately more important than choosing a side. But he would slowly start to see his friends and neighbors do just that. He signed an oath of allegiance to the crown with Cornelius Harnett, a future patriot leader, and William Hooper, one of the state's three signers of the Declaration of Independence, both of whom obviously recanted on that oath. In 
but Bergwin never did. As Patriot sympathies spread, and Bergwin found his once good name now closer to the fire than ever before, he somewhat conveniently broke his leg in 1775 at a party at the Hermitage, and soon left the colonies for England, on the advice of his doctor to seek further medical attention. Perhaps he thought out of sight, out of mind, would be his best strategy to maintain his interests with as little damage as possible in the coming revolution. While in England, he rents out his home at 3rd and Market Streets to his friend Charles Jukes and his wife Anne Wright Jukes, who raises her three children from a previous marriage in the home. But Bergwin couldn't resist staying away for too long. Lamberton said they've found references to him coming back to America during the war at least twice to check on his many properties, some of which he had transferred to his nephews in his will in case something happened to him, as he did not yet have any children of his own. But he would flee the country again when the Redcoats set their sights on taking Wilmington. After the British surrendered and Americans claimed their independence, Bergwin sought a pardon, and he received it, in part because his important roles alongside the former royal leaders of the colony would prove invaluable to a country suddenly left to function all on its own. He would also retrieve all of his properties back, which had been confiscated in the war, and resume some of his merchant business in and around coastal North Carolina. But his status would never again be what it was prior to the war. He had remarried in England in 1782 and had three children with his second wife, Elizabeth Bush. But Bergwin never reclaimed his home at 3rd and Market Streets from the Wright family, and he died in 1803 at the Hermitage. Although the Bergwin Wright House is named for its founder and the family that would take over its history after the war, it's most prominently associated with someone else who only spent a short period of time in the house. After Wilmington fell to the British in 1781, Lord Cornwallis, one of the leading generals of the Redcoat Army, is said to have briefly set up his headquarters inside the home. His men even made use of the former jail cells to hold local patriots they captured as they took hold of the city. Having that association with such a recognizable name, one that was certainly more widely known than Bergwin, quickly became the home's legacy for the locals, who would start calling it the Cornwallis House, a name that would still be used well into the 20th century. In our interview with Lamberton later in the episode, we'll get into why some historians feel that while Cornwallis's presence in the home may have been embellished over time, it's actually one of the reasons the home has survived long enough to celebrate its 250th birthday this year. After the war, Joshua Granger Wright purchased the home from Bergwin, where he raised his own family of seven children with his wife, Susan. Like the home's previous owner, 
Wright had his own respected career in the first decades of America's independence. He served as a member of the North Carolina General Assembly from 1792 to 1809 and later sat on the North Carolina Supreme Court until his death in 1811. The House would pass to his son, Thomas Henry Wright, who was just 11 years old at the time. His mother and siblings continued to live in the home with him until he returned to Wilmington after graduating from Columbia University with a license to practice medicine. Thomas Henry has the distinction of being the only person to live his entire life in the Bergwin Wright House, save for those few years that he was off at college. His lifelong fascination with the house and architecture in general right up to his death in 1861, led him to oversee a major expansion and renovation of it in 1845. The house would then pass to his son, Adam, who was also a doctor that served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War as a surgeon. But that's where the Wright's time in the home came to an end. Adam sold the residence that had put a roof over his family's head since the Revolutionary War, to William H. McCreary, a prominent local banker, in 1869. He would die just over a decade later, leaving his wife, Martha, to care for the home. The last person to live in the house would be Rowena Wiggins, Martha's sister, who lived alone in the home until her death in 1930. It's here that the Bergwin Wright House's fate could have taken one of three paths. After Rowena's death, the house passed to the bank without a family will to fall back on, and its two signature families now long gone. A gentleman by the name of Samuel Pryor claimed that he wanted to buy the house, dismantle it, and relocate it to his property in New York by way of a barge, which sounds like a whole lot of trouble that would have seriously jeopardized the historical integrity of the house. But then another option arose that could prove even more devastating to the historic home. Standard Oil really wanted the land for a gas station, and if Pryor took the home, they could easily snatch up some of the most prime downtown Wilmington real estate in nearly 200 years. Unfortunately for that plan, the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina, which had been looking for a new headquarters for its state chapter, caught wind of an 18th century home in the path of 20th century progress the women of the organization would deploy everything they had in a seven-year effort to save the house, the remains of the jail, and all of the history contained within them from demolition. Eventually, the women's dogged and tireless effort worked, and they won the battle. According to the Bergwin Wright House's history, Pryor even abandoned his own plan to help the dames, contributing $250 to their cause. Although it had fallen into disrepair during that first decade 
without any residents for the first time since it had been built, the dames would help restore the home to its former glory, starting in the 1940s. The Bergwin Wright House, or the Cornwallis House, depending on which history book you're reading, is a storied part of Wilmington's past. So much of its history, from those who lived in it to those who served its residents, is still yet to be unearthed. And although the historic preservation movement wouldn't fully take hold for years after the dames bought the house in 1937, it is still an early example of the value that so many people see in holding on to history, even when it's not pretty. In the face of every war, cultural shift, and hurricane that's been thrown at it in the Cape Fear region, the Bergwin Wright House has, for a quarter of a millennium, held its place at the heart of Wilmington, even when so much history around it has succumbed to time. Joining me now to talk further about the Bergwin Wright House is its museum director, Christine Lamberton. Uh, Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, So we are actually recording today at the Bergwin Wright House uh, because of our extended quarantine uh, procedures. We are sitting a good six feet apart, so we're we're adhering to our our, uh, policies. But I wanted to come out and do an episode on the Bergwin Wright House because it's a really fascinating uh, vestige of Wilmington's colonial past right here in the heart of downtown Wilmington. Um, and you are so incredibly knowledgeable about this house, so it's always fascinating to talk to you. Um, and I want to start out with where this property started, which was the jail. How much of the jail kind of still exists in records? How much do we actually know about the jail for sure? We actually know quite a bit about why and when it was founded. So we we have found the records that it, the property was acquired by the city of Wilmington in 1744 with the purpose of putting together a jail compound and that the jail compound is completed in 1749. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean the jail wasn't being used while it was being built. It just means that the three structures they intended initially were completed in 1749. And then we also know through the records that over the years they added different um, colonial punishment features on the property. <laughs> yes. Um, and then you see references to it being um, decommissioned and relocated. Okay. So this is such an interesting kind of origin story for a house because it's it's a jail. I mean, it's kind of a place of real intense darkness, especially in colonial times because, you know, this was a jail. It wasn't a prison. So you had all manner of criminals, you know, from from petty thieves to murderers coming through this property. I mean, that's kind of a, a weird place to want to build a house. But why did he choose this property specifically, John Bergwin? Well, you've got to keep in mind, um, the jail is located right at the corner of 30 Market Street, mm-hmm. the center of downtown today and the center of downtown back then. It was desirable location even in the 1740s. Mm-hmm. With Wilmington booming in the 50s and 60s, um, it becomes even more desirable. You've got um, St. James being built right across the street. You've got the courthouse down the street. Um, it becomes the central part of Wilmington. Um, but nobody uh, really wants to build a house with a view of the gallows. Yeah. You know, it's not that part was not desirable. Yeah. Um, it's also almost two acres. 
Mm-hmm. Two acres of available land. Meanwhile, downtown Wilmington, all three blocks of it really, are being acquired and being built on. So it becomes real estate. Mm-hmm. It's about real estate. With the actual jail here, you're seeing all, again, all manner of people coming through the property. But, you know, would it have been kind of a lively place here at the corner when it was a jail? I mean, was this a busy spot or was it, you know, it's it's not the jail we're thinking of today. But, I mean, what would this site have been like when it was a jail? So when the site was here, and we still have all three buildings mm-hmm. to, that were commissioned in 1744. We've got the main jail building um, that is actually two stories high. And you can see that on our west side that's built into a hill. That was the sheriff's office. So anything that had to do with the sheriff, any business dealings with sheriff, um, that would have been his business center. Um, he's got cages in that space um, for petty crime. Mm-hmm. And petty crime was rampant, you know, stealing a loaf of bread, um, gossiping, speaking out of turn. Um, that's considered petty offenses. Beneath that, though, beneath those cages, um, beneath that floor, is where your more grievous crimes were, okay. uh, criminals, um, murderers, horse thieves. Silver thieving, those were considered, you know, grievous. Inciting a rebellion later on, we know that was a place where they would have been kept. And that is the least desirable space you want to be in. Out back, you would have had the debtor cells, which we still have today. Um, And that's going to be anybody who's in debt. So, you know, you've had a bad share of crops. um, You owe money to merchants. They can actually put you in debtor's prison so that you are forced to repay them. And you can do that in a different manner. You can work off your labor, or you can wait for somebody to raise the funds for you. So I, in Wilmington, um, in the North Carolina colony, being um, poor, tended to be farmers, um, and it's a poor city, you can only imagine at least the debtors in the petty areas of the petty area of the jail are definitely going to be busy. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the street. You have the corner third market, you've got the food market along Market Street, you've got the courthouse, you've got a bustling port city. Um, it's going to be busy. You kind of think about how we, as you said, I mean, that would have been busy right there. It's kind of interesting to think about there being that kind of jail here. I mean, just well, part of city. colonial punishment is being seen. Um, intimidation, embarrassment, stocks and pillories, um, where you put your head and your feet through and your, your hands, it's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. They want you to be seen mm-hmm. by the public. Oh, so-and-so, Hunter and Grimm, he's in the stocks again. What did he do now? Um, also, capital punishment. We know that the gallows were right outside our doors in one of our now colonial revival gardens. Public hangings. You were encouraged to bring your children and your family to, to see public hangings. Um, as a way, it was believed that it was a way to deter crime. Yeah. That's um, To see that. Yeah, now we take pictures and in, in things like that where you put your hands and your head yeah, in them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, is is have before we move on to the house? I mean, have you guys done any archaeological re- more research into the jail? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of it still here. The the buildings are, but have you continued to do research into the role it kind of played in the city? So, in terms of archaeological, the three buildings are still here. Mm-hmm. All that's missing is the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have um, any evidence of where the outdoor cages were. Um, we know where the galleries were, but all those structures are gone. The metal would have been desirable um, mm-hmm. and recycled or used to a new location. Uh, the wood would have by now been gone. Um, the archaeological evidence we still find on site are going to be the trash pits. Mm-hmm. And we have located three trash pits. Okay. And um, after heavy rains, we know, and this is actually how we found but the, our newest ones, 
is after heavy rains, we still find artifacts. Wow. What kind? Oh, well, um, just recently on one of our terraces uh, where the um, uh, outhouse was, we find shards of China. Um, and then about three years ago in the garden where the carriage house was, they were digging in the bed after heavy rain, and we found part of a, a lantern wow. uh, that was likely used as a carriage lantern. So there's still pieces of it out here. Absolutely. Uh, um, so we talked a little bit about why John Bergwin would have found this property desirable, but is that why it's kind of unusual that he wanted to build a house over a jail, that he just kind of couldn't turn it down being the owner of this property? Well, it's funny because to you and me, um, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Would you really want to live, you know, where jail, in a jail building? Yeah. To them, what remains are three stone buildings made out of ballast, eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. Will you know be a perfect foundation for your home? Prime real estate. He's also you know part of the colonial justice system. He makes a lot of decisions. He's the one that um, approves the expansion of certain features on the jail. Um, for them, you know, it's functional. Yeah. What's left is functional. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, this is colonial time. Everything's having to be built. I mean, he already has buildings built here, so why not take advantage of it? And we we have this morbid fascination with what happened here. They did justice to the place here in his mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so we spoke a little bit in the in the scripted portion um, at the top of this episode about who John Bergman was, and he was very influential. You know, secretary. He worked with the royal governors. This house would have therefore been a show of um, status for him. But in comparison to everything in Wilmington, was it a good show of status? I mean, was he really impressing people with this house? Absolutely. Um, we talked earlier, um, this was not his only house in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. His favorite house was actually next door where the event space, the atrium, is located. And his private garden is where the new building at the corner of 2nd and Market is located. Um, and that was not a showy house at all. It was just a regular Georgian small house. We also know that the Burbright house, our neighbors, are three years older than our house. It's not as old as the jail buildings, but it's older than the Bourbon Wright house. Again, Georgian house, elevated on ballast. But again, not as large. Yeah. It's meant for a family. John Bergwin needed a show of status. He needed to reflect that he's the secretary to the governors, three of them, that he is the treasurer for the colony, uh, excuse me, that he is the head of militia, um, he's a planter, he is a businessman, he is a merchant. He needs to have a building that illustrates that. You can't have royal officials coming to Wilmington on a visit and tell them to go stay at a boarding house. That mm-hmm. would not make you a good host. Mm-hmm. Why don't you stay in this house? This house was entirely built with one purpose only, to impress, entertain, and house other politically and economically influential people yeah. when they want in town for visits. Well, and the same reason that people want to stay in downtown Wilmington now. It, they get to see the attributes of the city and they get to be part of that life. I mean, it was a different life then. It was it was kind of a, a center of economics and politics, but it still is. But, you know, I think that's interesting that that hasn't changed over time. There's still a desirability to want to be here in downtown Wilmington. Absolutely. And when you're housing them in this house, it's towering over all others. It has a view of the river at the time. There was nothing in its way. It's in the center. So if you're trying to entice maybe a ship captain, a desirable ship captain to come and use the Port of Wilmington. Because without ship captains, there is no port. Mm-hmm. So they have to be willing to come here. If he's staying in the bedroom and in the morning he sees how bustling Wilmington and the market's doing really well. And yeah, if he comes here and drops off goods for some of his clients, they're going to be sold. Mm-hmm. That, that makes Wilmington, you know, a desirable place to come. It really does. Now, John 
himself was a complicated character, very influential, but also had that complicated uh, relationship with the rebellion, the revolution that would then come. Where, What side did he really fall on, or did he kind of toe the line between the two? We get that question all the time, and people always hope that I say he was patriotic and signed the Declaration of Independence. No, his buddy William Hooper did. Mm-hmm. Although they were no longer friends after the war because John um, was loyal to his king. Um, but you've got to keep in mind, it's, it's not a black and white matter for somebody like John. John was born and raised in England. Mm-hmm. He came here when he was 19. He was a second-born son. There's no future for him in England. His brother inherits the estates. His brother inherits his father's businesses. Um, so really, his future is here in the colonies. He becomes landed through marriage. He marries a local girl, Margaret Haynes, from Castle Haynes. Of course, uh, local people will, will know about Castle Haynes. That mm-hmm. was his father's plantation. He makes friends. He becomes politically connected. Um, everything, his future, his whole livelihood is connected to North Carolina. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that he's born and raised in England. And again, um, when you say loyal to your king... You're not the traitor. You're, yeah. not, you're not the one inciting rebellion. So mm-hmm. in his mind, he's he's being a good subject to the crown. They're the good he's guys. also working for the governors. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a treasurer. So he's also invested in it staying under the royal crown because that's how he retains his status. But again, he also has to retain his properties. Mm-hmm. And in, he's very smart. Um if, if no other word applies, he is very shrewd and very smart. He he has a feeling that things are going to to come to head. And so you start seeing in his will, he rewrites the second version of his will. You start seeing in who he rents his properties to. He puts people who are born and raised in North Carolina and who are influential. He rents the house to the Wright family, okay? Um, originally to Mr. Jukes, who had married into the Wright family. Um, he starts transferring some of his properties, including his favorite house here in Wilmington, the one on Second and Market, to his nephews, Margaret Haynes' sister's children, mm-hmm. born and raised, again, influential. He starts moving his real estate so that if he has to go back to England, they're not going to be lost. They may yeah. be confiscated, but they're not going to be lost. They're in the and hands he does, of locals. He does go yeah. back to England, and mm-hmm. they are confiscated. And then he comes back and takes a pardon and is given the pardon. Um, under the Treaty of Paris. So he, he sees it coming. He gets himself in a little trouble. I mean, there's a lot of accusations. Some people never forgive him, William Hooper being amongst them for, for leaving um, and staying loyal so long, same with Harnett. Um, but, again, he, he's like many influential people. I always say the poor just want to survive the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the wealthy are the ones who can lose quite a bit or gain quite a bit yeah. from which side wins. Absolutely. Speaking about the revolution, uh, this house often gets called the Cornwallis House because of uh, its association with uh, General Cornwallis, who came here into Wilmington. But is that association really justified, I guess? I mean, it's so often locally, there's so many people who refer to it as the Cornwallis House. I, I, I spoke to you a little bit earlier about how I have two vintage postcards that don't call it the Bergen Wright House. They call it the Cornwallis House. I mean... What is the relationship between that short period during the revolution when Cornwallis was here in Wilmington and this house? I mean, was he actually here? The answer is yes, but it's not the, the traditional way that the story is told. Cornwallis was here. We know his headquarters were actually closer to the river. Strategically mm-hmm. speaking, that's smart. Cornwallis tended to not stay in private homes. He believed that homes, no matter which loyalty 
the folks who own them had had ears. Okay. The best way to get information out was, you know, with the with the people living in the house. He tended to, you know, stay in strategic places. However, he is entertained in the Bourbon Wright house. Okay, so it becomes the Cornwallis house when it's mentioned in a letter that Cornwallis was in the house for a party. It was a house to entertain. He is entertained during the war. John Bourbon is not here, but the Wrights are. Um, he's him and his officers are brought to the house, you know, for dinner and so forth. And he's seen walking down the stairs, which really impressed people. He's seen walking down the front stairs to go back to where he was staying for the evening. And so somebody makes a reference of that in the letter. And of course, over the years, it became, well, Cornwallis was here. Mm-hmm. Well, Cornwallis stayed here. Well, this is the Cornwallis house. You've got to keep in mind, it's the only structure left in town that Cornwallis was in. Just like if we still had a structure George Washington was in during his southern campaign, it would be known as the Washington yeah. house. Um, so over the years, it became the only symbol of the revolution and Cornwallis being here left that was tangible. Mm-hmm. So it became just known as the Cornwallis house. Yeah. Um, we love to point out that without that association, this house is, would not have been saved mm-hmm. um, from demolition. Or it would have possibly, but not as <coughs> successfully in yeah. terms of campaigning to save it. There's a significance to it. Absolutely. To even have that name on it. So we tell people all the time, Cornwallis is extremely significant to our history because him being here, him um, coming down those stairs and impressing you know people in town uh, with his presence um, and being known as the Cornwallis House saved it. Yeah, you you get a sense of of that when you do look at old photos and it just has Cornwallis's name on it because. So much of this house was defined by John Bergwin and, and the Wright family that came after him. But it's such that short period that really people will think about. I mean, you told me that people come in and ask about Cornwallis all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, being the colonial house in the American Revolution, you know, closely tied to that, we talk about the American Revolution on mm-hmm. our tour. Um, but yeah, people will come in and especially Native women, Tonys, I remember being here in fourth grade, but we called it the Cornwallis house because mm-hmm. fourth graders have been coming here since 1952. Wow. So we get a lot of I haven't been here in 25 years, but we used to know it as the Cornwallis House. And as a matter of fact, when I um, became director, you know, we started, um, we came up with a new logo and things like that. And we, my first year, why did you rename the house Bergeron Wright? Well, it's always been known as the Bergeron Wright. But because locals knew it as the Cornwallis, they had no idea that that was actually the name on the plaque and on the deeds. That's fascinating <laughs> to think that the city just, you know, locals just kind of give it the name that they know it as casually than in an actual house. That's that's interesting. So let's talk about the actual house itself. Uh, you know, an older house like this, one of the few colonial, you know, colonial structures that still exist from the time, I feel like it probably holds a lot of, you know, secrets. Are there any kind of quirks to its design? You know, people always ask old houses, do they have hidden doors? You know, what about this house makes it unique besides well, the jail? I don't want to disappoint. <laughs> you hunter there are no secret secret doors or stairways or movable cases. um but it is impressive in the sense that it is made out of old growth longleaf pine okay mm. extremely flammable as a matter of fact there's a city ordinance passed in the early 1800s no more buildings within the vicinity of the waterfront made out of wood because it would burn but because of those two acres that were the jail compound um are surrounding it if the house next door is burning, it doesn't hit our roof unless mm-hmm. there's a lot of wind, and thankfully, that's never happened. So this house, um, 
end of a wreck house, really, uh, next door. It's just incredible that they've survived just fire. Yeah. But you're right, I, I, that, that kind of buffer, that you, mm-hmm. the gardens here, the gardens obviously are very beautiful and, and, and very much a part of what you guys are showing off now as, as part of the property. That was a, almost a natural buffer that really probably saved this house because on the show in our first season, we talked about some of those 1800s fires that really robbed this city of a lot of history. Mm-hmm. And it's really impressive that here, you know, what was its strength being so centered in the heart of Wilmington? That didn't also cost it, it its life, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I know people will probably be disappointed there's no hidden doors, but I think they're also appreciative that it's still here. So I think that that's well, good we at least. Jail. There you go. You have a gel. Well, and also, I, I still find the gel probably just so intensely interesting because of it just shows the history of the house just going back and the multiple purposes of the property and um it's just i always love coming out here it's always well, it's fun because people <laughs> fix it on the buildings themselves it's kind of weird that he has a foundation made out of stone mm-hmm. that was a jail what i find interesting is that we have colonial revival gardens where the gallows were yeah that's, that to that's... me is more fa- we're walking and appreciating you know native plants and having parties and weddings and, and photo shoots where there were slave quarters and mm-hmm. a carriage house and you know at one point in time it was a gallows mm-hmm. and had cages um and co- you know colonial justice system is cruel and unusual yeah um so that to me is actually more fascinating than the building in some yeah. in, in some aspects when i reflect on that that is true that it, it was right out you know we are currently as i mentioned filming at the bergen Rhine house right outside the door was where all of that punishment would have happened mm-hmm. and uh it's, you're right. It's interesting to think about how visible they wanted that then versus how we kind of deal with, with punishment now, uh, especially capital punishment and stuff. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I first heard about the Bergman Wright House was that, uh, you know, on our show, we've talked about the, the sewer system, the tunnels that ran underneath the city, one of them being Jacob's Run. And there's a part of a legend that Jacob's Run actually connected to the Bergman Wright House. Is that true? Yes and no. Okay. Um, and I think I told you the first day I met you when I moved to Wilmington as a graduate student, I was fascinated. I was told that every house on 3rd Street had a door in their basement that led to a connection to Jacob's Run mm-hmm. because the merchants wanted to make it to the waterfront quickly mm-hmm. or smuggle yep. or, or, or whatever the stories were. And I was determined to knock on every door. <laughs> I was disappointed, but the history of Jacob's Run um, and all six of the springs that have these tunnels, there are six tunnels underneath Wilmington. Mm-hmm. You may recall a few years ago, um, Dr. Farmville was interviewed by Rock Springs, mm-hmm. the archaeological um, defining the opening. Yep. Um, Jacob's Run was no more special than that in terms of it was essentially was a spring that started mm-hmm. um, around 4th Street that was tunneled over because the problem with Colonial Wilmington is that every time there was a heavy rain or a hurricane, the roads would wash out. They were mm-hmm. made out of sand and dirt and whatnot. And it became a big issue when they were trying to build up Wilmington. They needed a road. And, every t- and actually, Jacob's Run could be navigated by a small vessel. The alleyway adjacent to our house also could be navigated by a small vessel canoes. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't think about that, but people can navigate downtown Wilmington on, on, on small boats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real issue every time it rains and it swells and it floods your property. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they built these tunnels that start about four feet and as they get closer to the river, they get shorter, you know, smaller and smaller. And then actually if you're on the waterfront, people claim that on the low tide, you can still see the portholes. I know of two, they are still visible um, near Elijah's. Mm-hmm. 
that is the tunnels mm -hmm. have gone smaller and they're shooting the water from the springs back into the Cape Fear River. Jacob run, Jacob's run is actually across the street. It mm -hmm. runs on the bank. Okay. And it cuts over the second street and market block. Every property that had a well, including ours, has a tributary. Tributary. <laughs> I'm French. Tributary that runs back into those tunnels to essentially rehouse their water back into the Cape Fear. They were really encouraged to get rid of any water source that could flood Wilmington. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have a small, well, I guess, tunnel that's not very large, no more than a basketball that goes through to Jacob's Run, but nobody could have walked through yeah. it. The myth in Lord Jacob's Run really started um, when it caved in mm -hmm. in the 70s, when they were building um, First Bank. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they were pleased to know that there was a tunnel running through <laughs> underneath their <laughs> bank. Um, but and, and teenagers, because at that point, the tunnel was still tall enough. Mm -hmm. um, teenagers and whoever, whoever else... Uh, went to investigate, and I, I can't tell you how many people have come in. I remember as a teenager, my friend went in. She goes, mm -hmm. it couldn't have gone very far. No, and um, they don't let you go in there anymore. No, and mm -hmm. they, they've collapsed. They've collapsed, um, they, and they're they, so they, tiny in some places. I yeah, mean, it's just they're so intercepted small. with other things like internet and sewer. Mm -hmm. What's really fascinating, though, is that their floors were made out of cypress. Mm. All the tunnels were cypress because cypress doesn't rot. Yeah. So all the tunnels' floors are, are cypress. So underneath that. the city, we have Cypress floor tunnels. It's just, it's just uh, another fascinating thing of this is, you know, something built on top of something else. There's, you know, so many layers to the city that yeah. you can see it here at Bergen Wright, which the house on top of the jail, on top of, you know, that network's just like that underground. And it's just uh, immensely fascinating. I know I say fascinating a lot, but it's the best word for some of this stuff, I have to say. Well, a lot of people will say, well, he built the house into a hill. The jail was built into a hill, and you can clearly see that. Our ground floor is actually technically the second story. But if you're on Third Street, you can see that um, Wilmington is built into the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, that the Bourbon Wright House is built into the sidewalk. Well, that wasn't the case. It was actually a door where a window is today. But when they raised up the streets, some of the buildings that predate that mm -hmm. are now considered underneath. So the, even the topography of this downtown has changed mm -hmm. if you think of around Bergen, right? Yeah, the Children's Museum, that yeah. structure that you have to walk into, the mm -hmm. brick structure. Um, yeah, we talked about on, that yeah. on, our, on one of our uh, Cape Fear and Earth walking tours. Uh, Beverly Tetterton was telling. She always finds it fascinating, the street-level difference between where the, the older buildings were and where the street Absolutely. is now. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a number of families who have come through this house. The Bergwins, obviously, the Wrights. You know, they've all kind of etched their own stories into the, into the house's history. What kind of things are left behind from those families that are still in the house that you guys get to show off today? In terms of architecturally, Thomas Wright and John Bergwin are going to be the most significant. John Bergwin because of the original colonial structure, of course. Um, but Thomas Wright in the 1840s, you know, he's now competing with other planters. Um, houses like the Latimer are about to be built, the Bellamy Mansion. Um, it's, in ionic columns are popular. Um, and so you see Thomas Wright adding an addition that you see in the back of the house, the southeast part of the house, for his children. The house doesn't allow for his children to sleep on the top floor like at the Latimer and the Bellamy. And I use those as references because they're open to the public and people have possibly mm -hmm. been in them. Um, you can't put human beings up in our attic. They would suffocate from the heat. Um, and there's no space. So he's got eight kids. He's got eight children that he needs to house. He adds an addition. 
He's also responsible for bringing the kitchen indoors. So the jealous quarters that is decommissioned and turned into the enslaved kitchen house, uh, which we're actually standing above mm -hmm. now, um, becomes a garden shed, mm -hmm. uh, which actually is wonderful because it was never renovated and updated. When you walk into that space, it feels like you're going back to 1744. It really does. There's no plaster. You nope. still have the original gel lock. We still have the gel key that fits that lock. Oh, wow. So that's really fascinating. Him omitting that space, we are so thankful for him. Mm -hmm. um, he's the one that changed the, and we get this all the time. Um, and as a matter of fact, it was just posted on Facebook and a group. Well, I like the island columns better than was today. Well, actually, the columns you see in the front today is what John Bookway would have had. Mm -hmm. just square columns. Um, Thomas Wright is the gentleman who took those out in the, in the 1840s, excuse me and added ionic columns to make the front facade more formal. He changed out the wooden staircase for brick. Again, trying to make the front facade more formal, more modern. He's the one that brought in gasoliers. Well, because he was living here. Was he, was he not? Yeah. I mean, the Wright family was. It was different than Bergwin, Absolutely. who was using it as more of a... A satellite house, you know, using it for purposes. This was the home of the Wrights. Yeah, so John Bergwin sold the house in 1799 to Joshua Granger Wright, who had grown up in the house when his family was renting it from John. His son, Thomas Henry Wright, who I'm referring to here, was born, raised, and died in this house. He is the only person um, who, was, who spent the entirety of his life, except for four years in college, when he was in college, in the Bergen Wright House. He's the one that raised his children here. Um, his son um, is, is the one who sold the house out of the Wright family. Um, so he was the one who was really invested in this property. So it became a family home. It became a family home just like the Latimer and the Bellamy's. Yeah. yeah. And it was no longer, Wilmington was no longer just busy in the summer. It was no longer desirable to come to town just for the summer season. People started living all year round in Wilmington. It was safer. Um, you, you had, you know, the hospitals and doctors and street lighting mm -hmm. and a fire department. Those are things you don't have when John Bowen's here. So it becomes safer, more desirable to stay here. And then you go to the plantation as needed over the summer. So the winter, rather. this house has been protected for so many years because it, there's an appreciation for it. It shows the past. It has that legacy of, of Bergwin, but also Cornwallis and all of that. But there was a point in the early 1900s when it almost was gone. I mean, what happened with that? Because it almost was replaced by a gas station. <laughs> yes. So in the 30s, you start seeing standard oil acquiring corner lots. Mm -hmm. They need gas stations. Um, the cars, the automobiles, you know, booming the industry. And so you see this in Winston-Salem. In Old Salem, they lost a lot of their structures because those corner lots were so desirable. And one corner lot that was desirable was right here, Third Market. To have a gas station here was perfect. The house had fallen into disrepair. Um, it had been sold to an elderly couple who had passed away and had been inherited by an elderly woman who actually didn't live in the house itself but lived in the addition only. Um, it hadn't really been modernized in a good 40, 50 years since essentially Thomas Henry Wright was there. And it just, if you look at old pictures, it was, it needed a lot of restoration. Mm -hmm. So did many structures here. It was yeah. one of many who were beautiful, um, older homes that needed a lot of attention. Historic so, preservation wasn't as exactly. rampant as it was. Um, it w wasn't for another you know, five, ten years. Um, and so using, we're losing historic structures left and right. Bergen Wright House would not have been any different. But it was recognized that it was one of 
only, you know, six colonial structures left in Wilmington. It was the Cornwallis house. You're coming out of an era where, you know, you've had a depression. And so campaigning to save this house from demolition was seen as a local point of pride. And the National Society of Colonial Dames of America and the state of North Carolina were looking for a headquarters. And I would say it's all about timing. They were looking at a headquarters house for their society. They had put in an offer for a house on Fifth and Dock. It had not come through. And they were disappointed. And then they hear that Standard Oil wants to demolish a, a, a colonial home that Comalso was associated with. And they saw that as, you know, we must campaign to save it. It's fake. And it's, what's funny is that another gentleman um, from Connecticut, Mr. Pryor, was visiting one of his friends here in Wilmington and had also heard about Standard Oil's offer. And he was horrified as well. And he had planned on taking the house apart piece by piece, putting it on a barge, and bringing it up to his summer home in New York. Oh, wow. On the water. And he was actually, he was from Connecticut, but his summer home was in New York. And he was, that was his way of saving the house from demolition because it was a done deal. Essentially, who can compete with Standard Oil? True. And when the ladies in the community heard about that, well, now that becomes a southern point of pride. It was more horrifying for them if a southern landmark is going to go up to the north. Um, so, and I love reading the minutes. Yeah. It's just funny um, in a good way um, that, that that really rallied them even more. They campaigned for seven years. You can only imagine to be able to put off Standard Oil for seven years. This is 1930. For seven years, they do every trick in the book. It's wonderful. They try to have it dedicated as a monument. Then they try to have it dedicated by the federal government as a national shrine. And I love the letter. We have it in our archives from the office. And the gentleman's being very tactful. This is a very significant structure, historically speaking. But Cornwallis, you know, person who fought against the Patriots, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, on the, on the wrong side, being here does not make it our national. Oh, you know. so they were making the case that why would we want to honor the bad guys in the revolution? Well, yeah, they said, you know, the federal government is not interested in national shrines dedicated to Lord Cornwallis. They're more dedicated, and especially during this era, they're more interested in acquiring battlefields. This is when you start seeing a lot of battlefields. Hmm. Um, they're more interested in, you know, civil war and revolution battlefields. That's a heck of a... Like house. That's a heck of a position to take on this. But they're smart, because whether the ladies knew it or not, they're putting off the transaction between Standard Oil and Wilmington Savings. So keeping the fight going is what's keeping this safe. Exactly. Meanwhile, they're fundraising. They're raising the money. And they finally acquire enough to to uh, match the asking price of Standard Oil. And of course, by then, can you imagine being the director of the bank for the last seven years, local guy? He's been hearing this from from every corner. (laughs) Is he going to take Standard Oil's (laughs) offer? Or is he going to take the one that matches it? Um, So that, it's just a wonderful story. It shows that the community came together. And it also shows the role of women Mm -hmm. in in preservation. Women were the first to really um, look at preservation from the standpoint of not just battlefields, but homes, Monticello, Mount Vernon, ladies' organization, Mm -hmm. this house. And of course, um, the NSCDA MC and all the NSCDA um, societies throughout the country are preservationists, um, first and foremost, education and preservation, patriotism. I love that it was women who were like, we're just going to kind of David and Goliath this thing with uh, Standard Oil and, and 
save this house. Well, I'm seen as a point of domestic, you know, the domestic sphere, mm-hmm. women and the home and so forth. But I can only imagine. Um, I wish I knew more about this director of the bank for those, for those seven years. You know, <laughs> he had to deal with because I, I imagine that they were persistent, and so was Standard Oil, and he was probably feeling pressure from both sides. And I'm pretty sure Standard Oil was irritated. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> because the swiftness was that they had hoped for was not taking place. Honestly. They probably weren't getting as as quick a deal as they usually did elsewhere. A- absolutely, and so. Um, so yeah, I just think it's a wonderful story. It really is. I'm I'm glad it was saved. So as we're talking about this in 2020, this is the house's 250th anniversary. What kind of condition is it in now? I mean, uh, what what kind of work do you guys have to do to preserve a house that is from a colonial period? I know you were doing some work recently. Yeah, so um, you know, the house went underwent a full restoration in the 40s and 50s. Complete restoration. Um, and then it went through phases of minor restoration, um, semi-minor restoration, you know, chimney here. Thankfully, the bones of the house being longleaf pine means that we don't have any structural issues. People always ask, the house is leaning. Structurally, it is completely sound. We don't have termite damage. We don't have rot when it comes to the longleaf pine. Our biggest issues are aesthetics or um, the chimneys. I always tell people this, this house has been through every hurricane, Hurricane Hazel, you know, every mm-hmm. hurricane since, you know, 1770. What gets really um, damaged and did with Florence are shutters, chimneys, mm-hmm. um, and flooding. Flooding is still an issue after heavy thunderstorms that ground floor, not where the gallery and the gift shop are, but the one where the grievous crimes took place that's not built into a hill. Well, they get the walls get saturated because from three sides, Jordan sand, mm-hmm. and if the ground gets saturated, then it finds its way through the mortar where the ballast stones are. So that basement um, often floods, and during Florence, it flooded two feet. Mm. So you've got two feet in your basement that has to be pumped out and dried out, and so that's a big issue. Um, our chimney, um, one of them, we just stabilized. We completed the work. It has a new chimney cap that you was did, yeah. featured in the newspaper. Um, thank you, Hunter. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Then no longer had a, it was actually what we call the floating chimney. It has four flutes going through it. It's, it's the chimney for four fireplaces in our house. Um, but every time the wind or the heavy traffic trucks, we don't think about that. They weren't thinking about that kind of traffic. It would move because the foundation of the chimney was no longer there. Likely from um, the, the streets being elevated, made it inaccessible to, to fix. The poor guy had to crawl on his stomach and rebuild the foundation for a chimney. The, found, the, the crawl space is not even two and a half feet. They have to send the smallest guy in um, to do that work. It's claustrophobic. I mean, you have to crawl on your stomach at least a good 12 feet to get to it. Um, so I think a lot of it was, um, it was not accessible for maintenance. Yeah. Um, and so there was nothing. There was nothing holding that chimney. You can imagine thorns. It was detrimental. And when you have damage to your chimney, you often have interior damage that comes with that. And so it, it was, we found our original horsehair plaster, mm-hmm. but not in the way we had hoped. Um, you know, it was being damaged by water intrusion through the chimneys because of that. So that's something we did. The best, um, best year of my life to hear is 2018, that we did a full restoration of the interior worked on the plaster, did a paint analysis with the late Ed Turber, went back to the original 1770 colors. So when you walk into the Bergen Wright House, you're not seeing colonial colors, what was popular could have been. You're actually seeing the colors that John Bergen picked for his house. 
It's exactly like it was in 1770, with minor conveniences like air conditioning. <laughs> a, a good convenience. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, you got to think back to the colonial times when they didn't have air conditioning, but they still had very hot summers. Yeah. So my final question is, are there still things to be learned about the Bergman Wright House and the people who lived here over time? Oh, absolutely. Our research is never done. As a matter of fact, we, we received a research grant two years ago to do more research on the women and the enslaved people that were here. Well, we know about the enslaved workers who built, who are responsible for the craftsmanship of this house, who built this house, who worked, um, who are the source of John Bergwin's wealth, um, let's be frank. Um, we knew as general terms what we could find in textbooks. What was, you know, slavery like in the colonial era? What were the norms? Because they don't write in the letters. You know, John Bergwin's daughter left 17 volumes of autobiography and diaries and only makes references to enslaved workers three times and calls them servants or my loyal friend. Hmm. Okay? She started writing as a teenager and stopped writing in her 70s. Three references. Wow. So when people come here and they're... They've been to maybe other sites who can tell you all the names there, you know, and, and special story, not special, but st- personal stories mm-hmm. or family references. We don't have that here. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have the names. Um, the colonial deeds um, were digitized. Dr. Burke and our Christine Ingram here, mm-hmm. our director of events and programs, were responsible for that. So we found um, references to. Um, to the enslaved people that were owned by John Bergwin and, and the rights here. Some names, some not even referred to by name or trade, um, but we just don't have a complete picture. And so a lot more, even though we have the grant, we've done extensive research, um, more needs to be done yeah. because we have gaps in our interpretation and we are very honest and forthcoming about that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you in general terms what life would have been like. I can't, I, I want to give you more specifics and we're gonna work on that. Mm-hmm. Same with women. You know, we can tell you everything about John and all the roles he played in the economy and the founding of Wilmington. But what about the, the women that were here, the wives? Um, we need to. We want to learn more through those trash pits. Maybe eventually we can do more archaeological investigations that will give us a little clearer idea of. You know, we we one of them was excavated rather well, so we know what they ate. We know some of the china patterns that they had, um, but we want to know more, especially the one where the privy was attached to the slave quarters. Um, give us more of an insight to that space. We need to know more about the connections, John. Where was John during the war? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was he doing? We need to know more about that. Um, so yes, it's endless. You know, we it is not static. We review um, our interpretation of the house twice a year because we find things out. And every time a family member walks in that we're meeting, we learn more about the family yeah. and where the family. As a matter of fact, five years ago, a woman came in. It was like a Tuesday afternoon. Nothing exciting was happening. She walks in, and um, she's a descendant of Eliza Bergwin, Clithrow, John Bergwin's daughter, middle child and only daughter. We had not met anybody from that side of the, that branch. What mm-hmm. happened is Eliza and her children went to Alabama, and we kind of lose track of them. More research needs to be done there. That's all we knew. Um, she told us a lot of them immigrated to Texas. As the territories opened, they would immigrate further and further. We had no connections to that side of the family at all. So it was fascinating. Again, Tuesday afternoon, I was so excited to see her. <laughs> I bet. Uh, you know, so as people walk in the door, even locals, and their connections here. Well, it's, it's interesting to know that you guys, you have the bones, you know, you have the foundation of the jail, the original purpose. Mm-hmm. You have the house. 
you have the gardens, you have all of this, and you have the history of so much that happened here, but there's so much you could still fill in I mean, about the experience of actually living here and being part of the Bergwin Wright house and the property. Well, you know, I did an architectural tour. I have a two-hour script for an architectural tour. I thought I had covered every architectural detail. A gentleman who is a preservationist in architectural design, you know, obviously a specialist, so I'm not. Walks in, he's like, you have a flowing staircase. That's very unusual in this area. And then he went off for 20 minutes explaining to me this one architectural feature I've been staring at and interpreting. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a staircase. He's like, no, this is really special, architecturally speaking. So again, the public coming in, mm-hmm. they teach us. Yeah. 250 years later, this house's story is still fluid. It's still changing. It's still being able to bring in more elements of, of the past and the present. Absolutely. Well, I would encourage everyone to come visit the Bergenrite House. Um, as we're recording this, uh, it is still closed because of coronavirus, but you guys are still evaluating that and you will announce any type of reopening or any events uh, through your Facebook and through everything. And um, through the paper, I'll report on that as well. So we've got all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of things coming this summer, I imagine, that you guys are itching to do. Yes, absolutely. It's our 250th anniversary. Exactly. You had all kinds of things planned. I was going to come speak about this in, in March. And so, uh, but you guys are also going to be getting uh, some really special plaques uh, from the Historic Wilmington Foundation to show the um, age of the property and, and its history, that those will be going up this summer, hopefully, as well. And so, uh, Everyone needs to come and visit the Burger Night House. And then come again because they, you might have learned something new since they came last. Yes, please come. We'd love to, to have you back. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Christine. It's always a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the history of Wilmington's first jail and the Bergwin Wright House. Thank you so much for joining me. And a special thank you to our guest, Christine Lamberton, and the entire staff at the Bergwin Wright House for helping me out with this episode. Be sure to check back soon for our next episode, when we will turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then, make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes, and all of my local history coverage for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to all of our new episodes, and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today 
at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. Thank you.